You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. We're talking with Dr. Isaac Towell on alveolar requirements for successful long-term dental implants. Dr. Towell is the current president of AIE, Advanced Implant Educators. AIE courses offer real-world execution of implant placement, alveolar ridge expansion, and crestal and lateral wall sinus graft augmentation. Dr. Towell lectures around the world and teaches live surgical seminars on advanced dental implant procedures using the latest technology. Dr. Towell has done several podcasts with us that are getting great um, reviews. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. Glad to be here again. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about alveolar requirements for successful long-term dental implants, as I mentioned. And my first question is, what happens when we extract a tooth and how can we aid healing for future implant therapy? So this is a, a common thing that we're all going to deal with in our offices every day, uh, those who, take, who extract teeth. I know there are a few out there that, that would prefer not to do any surgery whatsoever, but uh, typically the first line of defense is the general practitioner, and they may be the ones to take out a tooth. Now, if you look at a specialist, they might take out a tooth, but they're usually going to put some kind of a bone substitute in that, in that uh, um, area where the tooth was extracted to try to preserve that bone. So what's happening now is that we're seeing a lot more general practitioners extracting teeth because they're getting better and better at surgery and the tools are becoming even better. Uh, we just actually created a brand new set of uh, forceps called the Frings forceps, which are kind of spring-loaded and very comfortable. And at our last meeting, they, were, they sold out before we can even blink. Um, they're just, it's, it's, uh, it's something that now the tools with peritomes out there and, and all different types of, uh, of devices to extract teeth, that more and more general practitioners are taking out teeth. And when we take out a tooth, typically what's going to happen is that alveolar bone that's surrounding that tooth is going to resorb, especially the buccal plate. And when we want to place an implant, we hopefully want to res restore that extracted tooth with an implant. We need to have a good amount of bone width, bone volume, to be able to place that, the implant. Now, if that bone, that buccal plate resorbs and kind of flattens out into kind of a, a sharp peak of bone, we're not going to be able to have an uh, implant placed there without doing some Bone, bone augmentation procedures. So our responsibility as a general practitioner and a specialist is to we'll take, when we take out a tooth, is to preserve that bone using some type of a bone substitute. Uh, one bone substitute that I absolutely love and which people may not even, know, most people don't know about is the patient's own tooth. Mm -hmm. Very often we'll take out a tooth because of periodontal disease. It's a little bit mobile, extract it, and then we toss that tooth in the garbage. The products out there, such as a Dentin Grinder from Cometa Bio, and there's a uh, another one that's escaping my my mind at this moment, that actually can, you can clean off the tooth, clean off the, the the tissue, any decay, any any restorations, and then put this in a in a grinding machine, grind it up, utilize it in the 10 minutes, clean it off, and put it in your patient's mouth, restore back their original architecture of their alveolus. So then, when it's time to come in about three months later or two months later or six months later or whatever it may be, we can then have a, a site that is going to be very easy for us to place an implant because patients don't really want to go through extensive surgeries to place implants, and we don't want them falling back on drilling their adjacent healthy teeth to do, go back to doing those fixed or, or removable restorations. So if we that socket, we can protect that alveolus, keep as much bone as we can, 
there's an extremely high likelihood that we're going to be able to place an implant by doing a very, very minor surgery, which doesn't require, usually have a lot of complications associated with it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you use that dental grinder, is the tooth material used as a matrix for the bone, or is it, how does that work? Absolutely. Okay. So once the, uh, once the uh, tooth is grinded up and placed into that socket, just like if we're using allograft or if we're harvesting autogenous bone from another area of the mouth, it will turn over into human bone. Uh, initially, it gets surrounded by your own bone blood vessels, then run through in between all these little granules, just like it would with um, allograft, and surround it. And then the body starts to come over. We get osteoclasts that come over and eat those little pieces of tooth or bone, and then you get osteoblasts coming to line and, and remake that new bone um, architecture. So wow. it's actually being turned over into real bone. And, and some of the histologies, are, take a look at uh, some of these websites, uh, like the ones at Cometabio, you see some amazing histologies, and you wouldn't believe the relationship to that tooth bone to implant is actually amazing, amazingly intense. What, so, what's the name um, of the, the tooth grinder, Cometabio? Can you say that again? So it's Cometabio. Cometabio, okay. Yes. Um, yeah, that's definitely worth looking into. So before doctors toss that molar or anterior tooth, whatever they're doing in the trash, they should... Yeah, well, one, thing, one thing before you move on to the next question, imagine how many teeth that oral surgeons are taking out, wisdom teeth, every day and mm-hmm. tossing them in the garbage. If we could save those teeth and keep them and grind them up for the patient and put them in a sterile packet, we, at this point, we know that they can last at least 30 years and we don't even know how much longer because it's only... 30 years worth of, of that on this, but theoretically they can, they can then come back 30 years later and they're missing a tooth and say, Hey doc, I don't want you to put somebody's dead bone in my body. Take my tooth, my ground up tooth when I was you know, 17 years old and had my wisdom tooth taken out, please put this in instead. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's something to consider. So what are the most common alveolar requirements for a clinician to place dental implants, such as like the bone width spacing between the teeth, that kind of thing. So that's a, also been changed over the years. Uh, from the very beginning, we always knew that we had to place implants, but we saw a lot of implants being placed very, very close together. So we know that now that we need to have at least three millimeters of, of bone separating from an implant to an implant. We know that we need to have about a millimeter and a half between an implant, the edge of an implant, and the start of the adjacent tooth. And a lot of these rules were created because of the fact that we had uh, uh, different types of implant connections. Now the implant connections that we have are a much more sealed connection, so we don't get what's called a micro gap. So technically, the implants can be placed a little bit closer together. Mm-hmm. But if we do that, what does that look like in terms of cosmetics? When we have two implants that are sitting one millimeter apart from each other, patient can't clean, patient can't um, uh, necessarily uh, get into those areas, and food may get stuck in there. So it's not the best thing to do. So we still observe those minimum rules. The other thing that's very important is that we want to have at least two millimeters of bone on the buccal surface after the implant has been placed. So in my practice, we've switched to subcrestal implant placement, meaning we found a bone-level implant that can be placed under the deeper so that we don't necessarily have to do so much bone grafting. We can go, Mm -hmm. let's say, two millimeters below the bone or one or two millimeters below the bone and start to engage that better bone and keep that two millimeters of bone on that buccal plate, which would in turn allow more longevity to the, to the patient's uh, health of the implant. In addition, there are some soft tissue things as well. We know that we need to have enough thickness of soft tissue. We know that, we, that at least three millimeters of soft tissue should be present around the implant for it to survive long term. 
The bone sets the tone. The tissue is the issue, which was coined by David Garber from uh, Team Atlanta many years ago. Rings true um, today as it ever it did from the beginning of uh, implant placement therapy. Right. The tissue is the issue. That's yep. that's the coined term. So osseointegration, we all hear that term all the time. We, most of our listeners have a good idea of what osseointegration means, but we'd like to hear it from you. So I'm going to ask you, tell us about osseointegration and how does bone density affect implant therapy? So osseointegration was first coined by, by the, uh, the late and great um, Pierre Ram, uh, uh, Brandmark, and, um, and he, uh, he figured out that there was this ability for titanium to fuse towards the bone. And it was used not just in dentistry and orthopedics as well. Uh, we didn't, I don't think even he knew back then that the dental industry would expand as it is right now. And I think if he were alive today, he'd be very proud to see what he had accomplished. Mm-hmm. Uh, but however, uh, well, going back to what we had spoken about uh, at that other um, podcast about the, the different densities of bone, when we have soft bone, it's very hard for us to get good osseointegration in a timely manner. So typically, what we've been we've been doing is to undersize our drilling protocols to get better stability, as we spoke about primary stability in the last lecture. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have a good bone density, meaning a patient, let's say, is on is on uh, some type of a a um, uh, osteoclastic inhibitor such as Fosomax or, or or they may have be be uh, on some other IV versions of that that could affect their ability to be able to turn over that bone. So our, we need to know that the patient is always has a good health. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most important things uh, to know about. If we if we um, have a, a patient that's a good candidate uh, has the ability to turn over that bone, then we'll be in good shape. So if that patient is let's say uh, missing a molar in the upper molar where that density of bone is very weak, it may take longer for osteointegration. Fortunately, the newer surface technologies and again the newer designs on the implants has helped reduce that healing time. As we spoke about, in the, you know, we're doing almost six weeks loading on mm-hmm. a, on a standard case, you know, where we just drill and place the implant, even in that softer bone, because that that density uh, that um, osteointegration period is occurring faster than than it had when we were using, uh, let's say, machine-milled implants uh, you know, 20 years ago, 30 mm-hmm. years ago. Right. And tell us about some procedures that grow bone in patients that have deficiencies. So everybody should be eligible once we know that they're healthy for implants. I never like to hear the term, you can't get an implant. There's always some type of methodology for us to be able to get an implant, whether it's putting zygomatic implants, which may sound a little gruesome like that, or doing sinus lifting, for example, which is something that's more common sinus lifts to be able to grow more bone in the posterior maxilla, a practice that used to be done in an OR to where it's done in a non-sterile environment in general practitioner's office. Uh, we, we used to do a ton of them until some newer technologies came out that helped us to um, pre- uh, prevent having to do the lateral approach. But we can now, we can grow bone extremely predictably in the maxillary sinus. Guided bone regeneration using very fancy membranes, such as like Gore-Tex titanium reinforced membranes or, tit- or titanium membranes by itself. Uh, there are different types of collagen membranes that can be used in various fashions with fixation uh, screws and tenting screws to be able to, for us to be able to grow that bone in the, in the, back, in the posterior or anterior uh, part of the jaw. Mm-hmm. In addition, there are new materials. Uh, these days we have more advanced technology. We have PRF where we harvest uh, blood from the patient's arm spin in a centrifuge and growth factors, uh, but more importantly, it makes the bone that we're using very sticky. 
can now manipulate it into those areas. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, we have obviously some of the different BMPs. We're seeing some even newer stuff with the newer BMPs that are now out on the market. We were using BMP2. Now we're finding out BMP7 and BMP9 is that might be even a better solution to grow bone. So there should never be a patient that should be dismissed for not being able to have fixed teeth in their mouth. I, I, should, I never like to hear the term, I can't get implants, unless it's because they may not be able to afford it. They can't afford it, that's one thing. But there are always some people that can grow bone using various different options for a patient to be able to have a fixed, fixed um, uh, dentition. And I'm always of the belief that no, no patient should have to go uh, to bed at night, putting their teeth in a, in a glass jar by the side of their bed. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a, a dream for many patients. Is that something? Are these procedures done primarily by periodontists, or GPs are doing them? Mostly, as well? yes, absolutely. Yeah. Usually, the specialists will be handling this. But if you have a love for it, and if you've completed that basic part, we know how to place basic implants. We're comfortable placing those, and you want to go up to that neck. It's good to first get the didactic, but then you need a hands-on portion. And I've never been a, I'm always a fan of, of working on typodonts and, and on pig jaws and cadavers and things like that, but the typodont and the pig jaw and hopefully the cadaver don't talk back to you. Right. That's <laughs> the, and then, so we like, to, we like to be able to work on live patients that are going to have real responses that are actually going to have bleeding problems and complications. So ha doing a live surgery program to me, if, you, if you're looking to do some of these more advanced techniques, is, is a prerequisite. I would definitely not recommend just trying haphazardly of doing these techniques at home without proper guidance and instruction. Right, and, and also just having the GP aware that these procedures are available and that they could uh, identify these patients and say, hey, you are not typically you know, someone who would be great for an implant, but I can refer you to a periodontist that could do these procedures and you, you can come back and we can have better bone and we can have more predictable success with these implants. So just that knowledge alone is is important. Knowledge is power, right? And, and, and if you give them that knowledge, then they can give them the power to make those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Towell, for being on this podcast. And I know you'll be doing another podcast with us on restoring an implant. Uh, we look forward to that one. And um, again, we really appreciate the great information you provided our listeners. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. My pleasure.